Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of Caton and Elmira, New York. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Kelly Stage was known for her goofy and cheerful personality. She was the bestie everyone deserves and was known for her ability to be your biggest hype woman at the drop of a hat. If you didn't believe in you, Kelly did. Now, she wasn't going to lie to you. She was going to be honest, but you would always walk away knowing that you had Kelly in your corner. Kelly was the kind of person who went hard or went home, and she rarely went home. In high school, she was on the cheerleading squad and played softball, all while managing to make honor roll the entire time. She graduated from Elmira Free Academy in Elmira, New York in 1998, then headed off to college. She did the damn thing and had a blast doing it, but once she finished out her college years, Kelly decided it was time for a change of scenery, and a big one at that. She packed up everything she owned and moved all the way across the country to Las Vegas. There, she got a job as a cocktail waitress at the Imperial Palace. It was big and bright and always busy, which was the perfect fit for Kelly and her outgoing personality. Her first year in Vegas was a blast, but she missed her family. During the Christmas holiday of 2003, Kelly decided to spend it back home in Elmira. While there, she checked out an Elmira Jackals hockey game and caught the attention of Tom Clayton, who is the team's forward, known for his ability to start a fight. And for anyone who's unfamiliar with hockey, that is not uncommon. Every team has that one player that they know is going to instigate something. The issue with Tom, however, was that his knack for starting shit was not kept on the ice. In April of 2003, he and another Jackals player faced charges after fighting with police cadets outside of a bar. Not only was the dude willing to fight cops, the Star Gazette reports that Tom also danced nearly naked on the bar, adding on charges of public lewdness and harassment. None of this was good for humanity, let alone a hockey player, but ultimately the privilege of being Tom resulted in the charges being dropped all the way down to disorderly conduct and Tom lived to taint the world another day. We're already salty, but let's keep going. Getting back to the hockey game where Kelly met this gem, there wound up being a Christmas party afterward. He noticed her while he was playing, but he got to woo her at this party. The rest was history after that, and Tom and Kelly started dating. For what it's worth, everyone in their circle seemed to think it was a pretty good fit. Kelly's independence and optimism meshed well with Tom's hockey schedule and his temperamental ways. Falling in love changes things, so Kelly wound up leaving Vegas and moving back to Elmira. Less than two years later, she and Tom got married, and while Kelly did take Tom's last name, her family refers to her as Kelly Stage, and so will we. Hockey careers are lucrative and unpredictable. You can make a shit ton of money in a short period of time, but you never know how long you're going to play. By 2006, Tom decided it was time to hang up his skates and focus on starting a family with Kelly. They decided to settle down in Charlotte, North Carolina, where Tom owned some properties and did exactly what they set out to do. Before long, Kelly was pregnant and the two welcomed a beautiful baby girl into the world. Moving was the name of the game here, and after just five years in North Carolina, the Star Gazette reports that Tom Kelly and Baby moved back to Elmira. 
Once they were closer to family, they welcomed a second child, a son this time, and Tom started dabbling in business. He opened up a franchise for Paul Davis Emergency Services, which focused on property restoration like mold removal and flood and fire cleanup. As for Kelly, she worked part-time on the weekends as a bartender. Tom's business seemed to do relatively well because in 2012, he and Kelly bought a house together on Ginnon Road in the nearby town of Caton. The house was modern for the time, but in the absolute middle of nowhere. You had to pass through the candy cane forest of rural hell to get there, but it was its own little oasis. You would be shit out of luck if your kids wanted to go trick-or-treating, but I'll be damned if they didn't have their own lake and an abundance of windows to view it from. I can see how this would be enjoyable, but while also feeling like a beautiful little prison, because that house doubled as Tom's office, which meant that his employees were constantly coming and going. Hey guys, gift giving season is amazing and stressful all at the same time and sometimes we forget to give to ourselves. Whether you give to you by starting therapy, going easier on yourself, or treating yourself to a day of complete rest, remember to give you some love this holiday season. I see my therapist every single week and I can't tell you how many times this season I've joked about needing to double up on my sessions. But seriously, though, my therapist is my sounding board for everything life throws at me, and I don't know what I would do without her at this point. I live for the holiday season, but this one has been really chaotic. We have three birthdays in December plus Christmas, and I don't know if it's just me or I'm getting older, but this daylight savings thing is for the birds. And not even really, though, because the birds aren't about this nonsense either. I just miss the sun. Anyway. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. I know that I went through a couple of therapists that just weren't the right match for me until I found the one that I have now, and I'm really glad that I stuck it out and found her. In the season of giving, give yourself what you need with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BigMad today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BigMad. By early fall of 2015, Tom had left Paul Davis and was working as a project manager for a friend's Surf Pro franchise. SurfPro essentially does the same exact thing Tom's last company did, and it definitely looks like it was a step down in his career, but you wouldn't know it looking at the Clayton Stage family. The kids were seven and three at this point, and for all intents and purposes, Tom seemed to be a caring father and dedicated husband. Kelly was happy, the kids were happy, and she loved nothing more than being a mom. On the night of September 28th, Tom went to his friend's house for a regularly scheduled poker game while Kelly stayed at home with the kids. At around 12.30 a.m. on what was now the 29th, Tom came back home, but things weren't the way he'd left them. On the kitchen floor, he found Kelly surrounded by blood. At 12.38 a.m., Tom called 911 and said, Help me, my wife's dead. According to the Star Gazette, the dispatcher asked Tom if he had tried CPR or checked Kelly's vital signs, to which he said, no, you'll see when you get here. 
During the call, Tom stopped talking to the dispatcher and started asking his children if there had been a robber. He then told the dispatcher that he was taking the kids to a neighbor's house, and the dispatcher told him that police and rescue were on the way. Two officers arrived just before 1 a.m. One officer entered the house and found Tom outside of the kitchen on his knees, visibly upset. The officer noted that Tom didn't have any blood or injuries on him, and when asked about Kelly's location, Tom pointed to the kitchen. The officer walked into the kitchen and immediately confirmed that Kelly was in fact dead. She was lying on the floor, lifeless, covered in blood. The officer immediately took Tom outside to clear the scene and ask him some questions. Tom stated that he'd been at a poker game for hours that night and came home to find Kelly dead on the floor. He said that his seven-year-old daughter told him that there had been a robber in the house. But if his seven-year-old told him that there was a robber in the house, why was he asking her about it on the 911 call? Unless that was the first time he had spoken to her after finding Kelly on the floor. And if that's the case, why in the fuck didn't Tom immediately go looking for his kids when he got home, knowing that his wife was lying dead on the floor, covered in blood? But let's continue. Following Tom's robber statement, officers went back inside the house to check for an intruder or any other victims, but they didn't find any. With the home secured, a canine unit scoured the area and investigators started processing the scene. In doing so, they noticed an open side door to the garage, but absolutely zero signs of a break-in or any kind of actual robbery. According to officers later interviewed by Dateline, there were signs of a struggle, though and there were a lot of them. It was clear that Kelly was initially attacked in her upstairs bedroom while she was in bed. The fight then continued down the hallway, leaving a trail of blood and a picture that had been knocked over. On the landing wall of the stairs, there was a huge hole suggesting that Kelly was either pushed down the stairs or she'd run down them and hit the wall. Kelly then continued towards the kitchen, where the attack on her continued and she ultimately died. An autopsy later concluded that Kelly had been beaten to death with a blunt object. She'd fought back fiercely for her life and her baby's lives, resulting in several additional severe injuries and broken fingers. Almost immediately, all eyes were on Tom. Officers told him that he was being taken to the station for questioning, and before the patrol car could even get out of the driveway, Tom told officers, you'll know where I was because my vehicle has GPS on it. Neat. They'll get to that. At the station, Tom told detectives the same story, that he'd been at the poker game all night and gave the names of the couple whose house he had visited, Linda and Greg. A detective confirmed with the couple that Tom had been playing poker there until around 12.10 a.m. and everything seemed to be normal during the game. At the same time Tom was being questioned, other detectives were interviewing Tom's seven-year-old daughter. We're going to call her Annie. According to Dateline, Annie stated that she was in her room playing on her tablet when she heard her mom repeatedly yelling, Run, Annie, run. She then heard her mom go downstairs into the kitchen and Annie followed. That's when she saw a man in jeans, a dark shirt, and a mask who she called the robber. Annie reenacted what she witnessed the robber do to her mom, and it was heartbreaking. He stood over Kelly with a cylinder in his hand and struck her repeatedly. Annie mentioned that after the man left, she hugged her mom and went upstairs to take care of her younger brother. And I think a part of all of our souls just broke. 
When asked how she knew the robber was a man, Annie mentioned that he had eyes like her daddy's. She also described the robber's height and weight as being similar to her dad's. She even said that the mask the robber wore was the same one her dad had. Within an hours of officers showing up at the Clayton Stage home, family members got the news and headed out there too. According to Dateline, when asked if they knew anyone who might want to harm Kelly, not one of them mentioned Tom. Instead, a family member suggested that police talk to one of Tom's employees, Michael Beard. He'd recently been fired from ServPro, and the family member thought that maybe Michael was upset about losing his job and had killed Kelly out of revenge. Tom had employed Michael at both of his jobs, and Michael had done various tasks around Tom and Kelly's home so he would be familiar with the property. According to court documents, 12 days prior to the murder, Tom's boss fired Michael for stealing and drinking on the job. At the time, Michael had been living in an apartment Tom owned in Elmira, but after losing his job, Michael couldn't afford the rent anymore and was about to be evicted. In summary, he was losing everything and this was definitely a lead detectives needed to check up on. A detective tracked Michael down, but Michael claimed he'd been home alone all night, except for a quick trip to the store to get some beer. He denied holding any grudges against Tom and said they were still friends. In fact, Tom had even been helping him find a new job. Before leaving, the detective asked Michael for a swab of his DNA and permission to access his phone, and Michael agreed to both. A detective later told Dateline that he didn't think Michael was suspicious at that point because of how cooperative he was being. Because Michael was not considered a top suspect, police turned their attention back on Tom. They found it interesting that his own daughter claimed the robber had the same eyes, weight, and height as her dad. Based on Annie's statement, Tom was arrested for Kelly's murder, but was quickly released on bond. And I think we can all agree that that escalated so quickly. Tom's arrest puzzled mostly everyone since he had a confirmed alibi, that poker game, but police weren't as confident in that alibi as everyone else was. Following Tom's arrest, Kelly's sister and brother-in-law took custody of the Clayton stage children. Friends and family of Kelly later told Dateline that they were completely shocked by Tom's arrest. However, that opinion swiftly changed when Tom got himself a new girlfriend as soon as he bonded out of jail. As for Tom's friends, Linda and Greg, whose house he played poker at the night of the murder, they were pretty stunned by Michael's arrest too. They told Dateline that they had gone over the events of September 28th, trying to remember anything that stood out, and there was one thing that did. While all of the guys were downstairs playing poker, Tom approached Linda in the kitchen at around 11 p.m. and asked to borrow her phone, claiming that he had left his in his car. Tom had two working legs, so it did seem strange that he wouldn't just go get his phone from the car, especially considering he had a wife and two kids at home, but it wasn't the end of the world, so Linda handed over her phone. Tom took it, walked out of the kitchen, spoke in hushed tones, then brought her phone back to her. Linda didn't think anything of it at the time, but it definitely seemed a little bit weird now. Not able to move past it, Linda talked to the other poker players from that night, who made it even weirder. According to them, Tom had his phone on him the entire night. There was zero reason he had needed to borrow anyone else's. Realizing that this phone call might be important, Linda went through her call log to try and find the number he had dialed, 
but there was no call listed for the time he had made it. She knew Tom had made that call because she heard him talking. The only logical conclusion here was that Tom must have deleted it before handing Linda back her phone. Linda's not a quitter, so she went online and accessed her phone records. There, she was able to find the call and wrote down the number Tom had dialed. She then went to the police and handed it over. They immediately traced the number and found that the person Tom had whispered evil nothings to was none other than Michael Beard. Detectives marched right back over to Michael's for a second interview, and it went about as well as you'd expect. Michael denied ever getting a call from Tom that night, but the ear witness and phone records determined that was a lie. Hey guys, I'm a late night binge watching queen because I wear that crown with pride. If there's a streaming app, I probably have it. Unfortunately, I can also be a little scatterbrained and I found out that at some point I managed to sign up for the same streaming service twice. I felt like that was definitely a me problem, but apparently more than like 80% of people have subscriptions that they have forgotten about. Thankfully, however, Rocket Money is there to point out those little whoopsies like mine and will even take care of the cancellation process for you. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills all in one place. With Rocket Money, you can easily cancel the ones you don't want with just the press of a button. No more long hold times or annoying emails with customer service. Rocket Money does all the work for you. Rocket Money can even negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%, which we love. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money also lets you monitor all your expenses in one place, recommends custom budgets based on your past spending, and they'll even send you notifications when you've reached your spending limits. With over 5 million users and counting, Rocket Money has helped save its customers an average of $720 a year and $1 billion in total savings so far. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions and manage your money the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com slash big mad. That's rocketmoney.com slash big mad. Rocketmoney.com slash big mad. According to the Star Gazette, while Michael was lying through his broke-ass teeth, another detective was talking to his wife. She mentioned that Michael was expecting $10,000 from Tom, which is shady. How often do you get ten grand from the dude who just fired you from your sometimes crime scene cleanup job? The answer to that is never. When the police brought that up to Michael, he sang like the birdest of birds instead of denying anything, he instead told police that the $10,000 was supposed to be his payment for killing Kelly. Michael continued his murder word vomit and told detectives that four months prior, Tom had asked him to do something that could get him in trouble. Although Tom couldn't seem to say the word murder, Michael understood from Tom's tone that's exactly what he meant. 
Michael initially said no, but on September 26, he agreed, but only after Tom offered him $10,000 and made a few threats. The plan was for Michael to enter the house when the children were away, kill Kelly, and set a fire to cover up the evidence. He was supposed to make it look like a candle next to Kelly's bed had started the fire. All of that was supposed to happen on the 28th while Tom was away at his regular poker game. Tom would call Michael as a signal, but Michael wasn't supposed to answer. Tom promised to provide Michael with a weapon, keys to the house, and a vehicle since Michael didn't have a vehicle or a driver's license. Two things that none of us are shocked to learn. On the night of September 28th, Michael waited for Tom's call to confirm it was okay to head to the house and kill Kelly. At around 11 p.m. after getting the call, Michael got ready, rode his bike to Surf Pro, swapped his trike for a pickup truck conveniently left by Tom, and drove away. According to court records, Michael stopped to pick up his friend Mark Blanford. Mark didn't know the details, but was aware that Michael was planning to commit some kind of crime and needed a lookout. At around midnight, Michael parked near Kelly's home. He went to the garage, covered his head with a shirt, and grabbed a weapon. He chose a maul, which is the handle of a sledgehammer, which had been left outside the door. Using the key Tom had given him, Michael quietly entered the house through the garage. Michael said that as he went upstairs to Kelly's room, she was walking out of it. Instead of running, he hit her on the side of the head with the maul. Kelly then followed Michael downstairs because mama bears don't play, but after a struggle, Michael delivered fatal blows to Kelly in the kitchen area. Michael told detectives that he didn't set the house on fire because he got scared, and here I thought it might have been because he was showing some kind of, even a shred of decency since the kids were in the house, but no. Michael fled the home because he was scared and left the shirt he had used to cover his face near a tree stump on the property. According to court records, after leaving, Michael changed into clean clothes and put the rest of his bloody clothes in a gym bag on the way back to the truck. So all of this was happening before actually leaving the property. Once in the truck, Michael held the mall out of the window to avoid getting blood inside. He and Mark then made their way back to Elmira. During the drive, Michael stopped the truck and threw the mall out on the side of Route 225 in Southport. He slowed down again a little further down the road near a bridge so Mark could toss the bag of clothes into a swamp. He threw the house keys into a shallow creek in Elmira Heights. When that evidence trail was done being created, Michael dropped Mark off and drove the truck back to Surf Pro, hopped on his bike, and pedaled off into the night. Police tracked down every single piece of evidence Michael discarded and sent them off for testing. The mall matched debris left at the Clayton Stage home, as well as debris found on Kelly's body during her autopsy. Michael's DNA, the one he had given that sample of, was found on that mall. Most of Michael's story seemed to add up, but there were a couple of issues. Police knew from the scene that Kelly had been attacked while she was in bed, but Michael said she'd caught him while she was coming out of her room. And also, Michael said Tom wanted him to kill Kelly while the kids were away, but both of the kids were at the house that night. In November, a grand jury was held and Michael shared the same story he had told investigators. 
In the end, both Michael and Tom were indicted on one count of first-degree murder and two counts of second-degree murder. They both pled not guilty. You might think this is where things start to streamline as far as getting justice for Kelly, but there was fuckery a-brewing. Following the grand jury, Michael decided to recant his confession, which complicated things. Without Michael's confession, the prosecution needed really strong evidence to connect Tom to Kelly's murder. The confession itself led to the discovery of the case against Michael, so it beats me why he would recant it, seemingly just to save Tom, because there was no saving him at this point. Not going down without a fight, though, law enforcement called in an agency to thoroughly examine both Michael and Tom's cell phone data and all of the records that come with it. In doing that, they were able to create a pretty damning timeline leading up to Kelly's murder. It goes as follows. On September 17th, Michael was fired from his job at ServPro. Michael might have been gone from the company, but he certainly wasn't gone from Tom's life because the two stayed in constant contact. On September 21st, Tom and Michael met at or near ServPro where Michael no longer worked, then went to Tom and Kelly's house before heading back to Elmira. Shortly after, Michael texted Tom saying that he needed a bike and Tom bought him one. The Star Gazette reported that later that day, Tom left for a week-long business trip in Ohio. Before leaving, Tom left his white pickup truck near Michael's home and used a ServPro vehicle to drive to Ohio. Based on that, detectives theorized that Michael was initially supposed to kill Kelly while Tom was in Ohio, since that would have been a pretty solid alibi. On September 23rd, someone from ServPro made a call to a nearby storage facility and asked if ServPro's property showed up on the security cameras. The storage facility told them that their cameras did not cover ServPro's parking lot. The following day, so September 24th, just after midnight, a friend drove Michael home after working a job. However, instead of going to Michael's apartment, they drove to where Tom's truck was parked a few blocks away. Michael and his co-worker then went to Tom's house. Michael got out, walked around for a minute, then came back. Following that, Michael and his co-worker went home. According to the Star Gazette, detectives believe Michael was scoping out the house because he was supposed to kill Kelly later that evening, but he ended up backing out thinking that police were watching Tom's truck. On September 25th, a ServPro employee named Luke asked Ohio-dwelling Tom if he could borrow a four-wheeler for the weekend, and Tom said yes. Tom then left Ohio, but instead of going home to see his wife and kids, he decided to spend the night at a casino and head back the following day. According to court records, on that day, September 26th, Luke arrived to pick up the four-wheeler from Tom's house to use for a weekend event. On the 27th, Tom told Luke not to bother bringing the four-wheeler back to his house and instead to just bring it into work the next day. It gets a little confusing here, but they plan to swap vehicles and Tom would return the four-wheeler home, switching vehicles back the day after that. After learning about that complicated little detail, detectives theorized that Tom saw this moment as an opportunity to make the murder plan work, you know, since it hadn't happened while he was gone in Ohio, as it seemed he had planned. Tom planned for Michael, who didn't have a car, to use Luke's truck on the night of September 28th. It seemed like the perfect setup since Tom had already had his planned poker night full of potential witnesses. 
On September 28th, the night of the murder now, Tom brought Luke's truck home and offloaded the four-wheeler. Then he went back to ServePro at 6 p.m. and left the truck in the parking lot. Surveillance photos from that nearby storage facility showed that he drove home in a green ServePro truck. At around 7.30 that evening, Tom headed to his friends for the poker game. Just before 11 p.m., Tom asked Linda to borrow her cell phone. Within minutes of getting a call from Tom, Michael rode his bike to ServePro and surveillance caught him picking up Luke's truck and leaving the parking lot. Court records state that at 11.45 p.m., Michael turned off his phone. Surveillance footage showed a truck returning to ServePro's parking lot at 12.55 a.m., and a few minutes later, Michael rode away on a bicycle, and at 1.12 a.m., his phone finally turned back on. If your phone is off, I can only assume that you are committing a crime or the victim of one. There is no in-between. Hey guys, I've always struggled with acne. I hoped as I got older, my skin would chill out, but that has not been the case. Now I'm a grown up and I have to take pictures and stuff. And you know, for like holiday cards that everyone's gonna hang up all around their house. So basically I do not have time for surprise pimples. We can't control everything the holiday season throws at us, but we can do something that helps us feel more confident and camera ready for those endless holiday photos. That's why I'm excited to partner with Apostrophe. Apostrophe is an online platform that connects you with an expert dermatology team to get customized acne treatment for your unique skin. Through Apostrophe, you can get access to oral and topical medications that use clinically proven ingredients to help clear acne. You just fill out an online consultation about your skin goals and medical history, then snap a few selfies and a dermatology provider will create a customized treatment plan just for you. Apostrophe offers access to prescription treatments for all types of acne, from hormonal acne to facial acne and even back, chest, and lower body acne. Basically, you can treat breakouts from head to toe. I took the questionnaire myself and it was so fast and so simple. And even though I was a little bit nervous about my bare face selfies, they gave my assigned provider a raw look into the concerns that I have for my skin. And for me, of course, that is acne and also a little bit of wrinkles. I love being able to communicate directly with the expert and work with them on what was best for me and my concerns. The responses were always quick and it was so personal. And for what it's worth, the packaging is also really adorable. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash bigmad when you use our code bigmad. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash bigmad and click get started. Then use our code bigmad at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. Although Michael claimed Tom was going to pay him $10,000 for killing Kelly, detectives couldn't find any evidence of an exchange of money between these two. Though I do think it's probably hard to transfer $10,000 when you're in jail and Tom was arrested almost immediately. 
With the above timeline in place, detectives were confident that with or without Michael's confession, they could prove that Michael did not act alone and Tom played a major role in the planning of his wife's murder. The only question left was why. No one could figure out the motive. Sure, Tom had a reputation back in his hockey days, but as far as anyone knew, he and Kelly were extremely happy together. But as we all know so well, things are not always what they seem. According to the Star Gazette, throughout the investigation, detectives learned that Tom had an obsession with money, making it, spending it, and gambling with it, and he was also very interested in women who were not his wife. Detectives spoke to several different women who had had sex with Tom while he and Kelly were married. These women said that Tom spoke negatively about his wife, calling her lazy, ungrateful, and a bitch. He even told one woman that he couldn't divorce Kelly because she would take everything. Cell phone records show that while Tom was sending love messages to his wife just days before her murder, he was simultaneously sending sexually explicit messages to other women, though he made sure to delete any record of those and the calls and texts to Michael. According to court records, detectives found that a year prior to Kelly's murder, Tom increased Kelly's life insurance payout from $500,000 to $1 million. A few weeks later, he told Kelly's niece, this is going to be the last Christmas with me around and us being together as a family. Who the fuck says that? Needless to say here, police had their pick of motives at this point because Tom was trash. In August of 2016, Michael's lookout, Mark Blanford, was finally arrested and charged with second-degree murder, burglary, and conspiracy. Later, he agreed to plead guilty to manslaughter and testify against Michael and Tom in exchange for a three- to six-year sentence. Michael's trial began on October 24, 2016. The prosecution argued that Tom hired Michael to kill Kelly and burn the house down. They highlighted Michael's confession to police and pointed out that he had led police right to the murder weapon. The prosecution told the jury that despite Michael's recanting his confession, DNA and circumstantial evidence pointed to him as Kelly's killer. The defense acknowledged that Michael had entered the home that night, but insisted that he was only hired by Tom to burn it down for insurance money. You have hit rock bottom if your defense to murder is your alleged plan to burn a house down with a woman and two kids inside of it. And note the lack of fire here. According to My Twin Tears, Michael's defense claimed that he believed the house would be empty that night and simply left after stumbling upon Kelly's horrifically beaten body and hearing the children upstairs. The defense claimed that Michael confessed under duress, fearing his wife's arrest if he didn't admit to the crime or stick to his story. And if you're confused here, that's because it makes absolutely no sense. And in order for any of that to be true, Michael would have to be wielding super secret crime-solving psychic powers that only appear during duress. Michael's stupidity wasn't the only crime here, but it was certainly an accessory. In the dumbassest of moves, he testified in his own defense, and we love that for him. On the stand, Michael told the jury a much different story than he had told police. 
Michael stated that Tom had offered him $10,000 to set the empty house on fire, not to commit murder. Michael claimed that he asked Mark to be a lookout and offered him money. Michael said that when he entered the house that night, he found Kelly's lifeless body and a masked intruder. He said that the intruder handed him the murder weapon and fled. And Michael decided that was his cue to run as well. There's no jury on earth who'd believe any second of that testimony, and this jury was no different. On November 4th, the jury found Michael guilty of first-degree murder and two counts of second-degree murder. Damn. The Star Gazette reported that during Michael's sentencing hearing, Kelly's family read victim impact statements. Kelly's sister Kim said, September 29th, 2015 was the most painful day in our entire lives, especially the lives of Kelly's beautiful children. You, Michael Beard, are a coward. Only a coward would attack a woman in her bed. I pray you'll acknowledge and accept responsibility for what you have done. We will never see her again. The kids will never see their mother again. Michael gave a statement as well, and if you thought you couldn't hate him any more than you already do, think again. Michael addressed the court saying, I did not kill that person. I'm sorry for your loss. I know you mourn, but I, Michael Beard, did not kill Kelly Clayton. May God rest her soul. That motherfucker was given life in prison without the possibility of parole and can eat shit. Michael eventually requested an interview with 2020 because he wanted to set the record straight. This time, he shared a completely new version of events, claiming that Tom never asked him to do anything illegal. According to Michael, Tom offered him some work and requested a late-night meeting at the Clayton Stage home. Because they worked for a 24-7 restoration company, getting calls at all hours of the night wasn't unusual, so Michael didn't think anything of it. Michael claimed he entered the house with the key provided by Tom and found Kelly's lifeless body. Michael also mentioned encountering another person in the house, but said he couldn't see their face. He said this person knocked him down, getting past him. Michael said, I got scared at that point, which I'm not using for an excuse. Yes, you are. But I never called 911 that night. I wanted to get out of that situation. I walked into something that had nothing to do with me. I didn't expect to walk into what I walked into. Michael said in hindsight, he suspected Tom had orchestrated the late night work call in an attempt to frame him for Kelly's death. When 2020 questioned why he signed a confession if he didn't commit the crime, Michael explained that those weren't his words in the confession. Detectives wrote most of it, and he believed confessing might be easier on his family. But how in the fruity pebble fuck would police have concocted a false confession that led them to every piece of evidence they had not yet collected? Every moment of this man's existence is offensive. You're probably wondering where Tom is in all of this since we've been so focused on Michael and the hue of garbage he brings to the world, but fear not because Tom's day in court was coming. His trial began on January 9th of 2017, and the prosecution argued that Tom didn't love Kelly anymore, but didn't want a divorce because he was worried she would take everything, you know, as he had told his mistress. In order to avoid that, the prosecution claimed that Tom devised a plan to kill Kelly, choosing Michael Beard as his perfect patsy due to his financial desperation. I'd also be willing to bet that Michael's oddly placed undying loyalty to Tom also had something to do with it. 
Because Michael had recanted his confession and lied during his trial, the prosecution couldn't call him to testify. Instead, they read his confession to the jury and used cell phone data to prove that Tom and Michael had several secret meetings in the weeks leading up to Kelly's murder. Meetings they believe were used to plan that murder. The prosecution told the jury that data showed that on the night of the murder, Tom called Michael from a friend's phone to tell him it was safe to go over and kill Kelly. Michael then left his house, got the truck, picked up Mark, killed Kelly, and disposed of all the evidence. The prosecution argued that while they couldn't prove Tom paid for the murder, they could show that he bought Michael a bicycle and provided job references. They pointed out that Michael had no motive to kill Kelly other than being paid since he had no personal issues with her. In fact, she had always been kind to his drunk ass. According to the Star Gazette, Tom's defense argued that Michael acted alone, driven by motives of robbery and revenge. The only problem with that was literally nothing was stolen. They claimed that the police immediately focused on Tom, even though he had an alibi, but that's literally how a murder for hire works and probably why he picked it. The defense emphasized the lack of any evidence that Tom had paid Michael, but again, it's hard to pay your hired hitman from your jail cell. Sure, he could have done it when he bonded out, but he was a little busy with the ladies, and it certainly wouldn't have looked good if the detectives investigating him for murder saw a $10,000 payment to the man whose DNA was found on his wife's murder weapon. Unlike dipshit Michael, fuck around and find out Tom did not testify in his own defense. Hey guys, gifting is a no-brainer this holiday season thanks to the unmatched comfort and style of MeUndies. From undies and bralettes to socks and loungewear, MeUndies has the perfect gift for yourself or anyone else on your list, even those hard-to-gift people. MeUndies has a holiday gift guide that makes it all super easy, and I'm currently living for their Grogu Christmas print. It's amazing. From all black classics to fun expressive prints like bananas and T-Rexes, MeUndies has a look for everyone. But fear not, because MeUndies isn't just about underwear. They actually have a lounge collection as well with cozy joggers, hoodies, onesies, and more. MeUndies signature fabric is as soft as a warm hug from your favorite hoodie that you can't seem to part with. It's breathable, stretchy, and insanely comfortable, making it perfect for all-day wear. MeUndies fabrics are light and breathable to help regulate your body temperature so you really do stay cool and comfy all day long. They use sustainably sourced materials and work with partners that care for their workers, which we love. And if you're not happy with your first pair of undies, it's on MeUndies. Knock out your holiday shopping today and get 20% off your first order plus free shipping at MeUndies.com slash BigMad. That's MeUndies.com slash BigMad for 20% off plus free shipping. MeUndies, comfort from the outside in. On February 23rd, after just six hours of deliberation, the jury found Tom guilty of both first-degree and second-degree murder. At his sentencing hearing, Kelly's family and friends read victim impact statements, and Kelly's sister read a statement from Kelly's daughter, Annie. It said, I feel my dad is a coward because he asked Michael Beard to kill my mom. 
Kim gave her own statement detailing how Annie suffered from PTSD after watching her mother get beaten to death and added that Annie's younger brother, who was three at the time his mom was killed, often called out for his mom at night. The Star Gazette reported that when given the chance to speak, Tom delivered a lengthy, rambling statement, which started with a Bible passage. He then thanked Kelly's family for caring for his kids, and I quote, until I get them back. Tom said he would have done anything to make his wife happy, except for being faithful, I guess, and then blamed prosecutors and investigators for unjustly targeting him, a completely innocent man, under the jail. Tom stated, There are two families that lost something in this tragedy. My children lost their mother and were ripped away from their father. I'm sorry Kelly is dead. I'm sorry that I can't see my kids. I had absolutely nothing to do with the death of Kelly. Absolutely. Ugh. That motherfucker was also sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Tom is a self-righteous, self-serving sack of shit, so it should come as no surprise that this sewer rat filed for an appeal. His first-degree murder conviction was upheld, but his second-degree conviction was overturned. I'm sure this felt like a win in the tin can he uses as a brain, but his sentence remained the same. The once king of the ice can now only dream of being king of the wreck yard, and I don't see that going well for him. Michael's second-degree convictions were also overturned and, just like Tom's, made 0% impact on his future. He, too, will spend the rest of his life counting cockroaches on his cell floor. Kelly's sister Kim is an incredible human and has been raising Kelly's children. When speaking to ABC News, she talked about how grateful she was to have them and that they help her stay in the moment. Kim told the station if she could say one thing to Tom, it would be that she's committed to making sure Kelly's memory lives on, adding, I would also say, you took her life, not her light, and her light will shine forever, through her children, through me, through my brother, through my mother, forever, and will be okay. For photos pertaining to this case, check out Kelly's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there today at noon Eastern where you go live with me and we talk about today's case and all other true crime cases on your mind. To get access to ad-free and bonus episodes, subscribe to our Apple Premium or head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just two whole dollars a month, your episodes are totally ad-free and Spotify just made it so that you can listen to Patreon on there. So shout out to them for that. If you love the podcast, feel free to leave a review. It makes my day every single time. And if you have a case you'd like to hear covered, share it with Big Mad True Crime on social media because all cases are covered by listener request. I'll be bringing you a brand new case on Thursday and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. We are officially at the end of this episode, which means it's time to read a review that made my entire day. This one is from Victoria C123. It says, Heather Ashley has turned up the sass on our latest episode, and I am so here for it. I love the way she advocates for these victims with her witty humor. She often has me giggling on the way to work, even when I haven't finished my coffee. If you know, you know. She's helped me understand why victims of domestic abuse don't just leave, and she always does such a good job of humanizing these victims regardless of their life choices. Her dedication to details and love of humans and grammar has me coming back every time. No dreadful small talk, no nonsense, and all the name-calling. We are here to rage. 
Victoria, I love you. It sounds like we'd be besties in real life. So you can go ahead and tell people that we're podcasting besties because it's a fact. Thank you for being nice to me. You didn't have to do that. I appreciate it more than you know. Okay, love you. Bye. Okay. If you've made it this far, it's time for the hot take and what a fucking day, man. What a fucking episode. Look, I threw the shade early in this one because I knew too much. How else was I going to fit in? That dude man fucking danced on the bar nearly naked and then fought police cadets. Now, I'm not sure why police cadets were at a bar. Like if they were in uniform, way shadier because why are you fighting cops? Like how invincible do you feel if they were just at the bar and they happen to be cadets? Oh, that makes more sense. Anyway, it's still stupid. Very dumb. Shitty foreshadowing. Fucking hate it. Anywho, she picked herself up a fucking hockey player. He seemed to do like pretty well for himself. You can Google him and stuff. I mean, he's not like, you know, Holpe or something, but you know, he's good, I guess. Fuck him though. Yeah. But okay. They moved all the time. That's the first thing I noticed in this case. Like, okay, she went to Vegas. She had to move back to Elmira. Elvira? Now it's Elmira. (laughs) Sorry. That was a funky one. Like the pronunciations online were all over the place. Anyway, Elmira. She moved back to Elmira for him. And then he was like, no, we're going to North Carolina. Anyone from fucking North Carolina or New York knows that they are opposite ends of the spectrum. Nonetheless, they go down there to start a family. He's not going to play hockey anymore. I tried to look up why he wasn't playing hockey anymore. Didn't see anything like outstanding. I think he's still like listed as a free agent. No, (laughs) definitely not a free agent. Anywho. Yeah, they moved down to North Carolina, have a baby. And then they're like, oh, no, let's move back to New York. They moved back to New York and then they're like, let's move a little bit over into Caton. And when you look at a map of Caton, holy shitballs, I hope you're a farmer. I hope you like wild animals and I hope you don't want to trick or treat. And I hope you don't want to fucking decorate for the holidays because nobody's going to see that shit. You this is a place where you're only there if you were supposed to be there. It is obscure AF. The home was cute. It was very like early 2000s when they were trying that modern thing with the really angular houses. They have like flat sides, really sloping roofs. I don't know how else to describe it. Color wasn't great, but it was a cute house for like the time. I don't think that style really lasted, but that also has nothing to do with anything we're talking about. Just something I noticed. I always like to look at the houses we're talking about because I want to get a vibe. Anywho, we've talked about that way too long. Yeah. So they had this lake and I had to zoom out and look at the property stuff and then zoom out on the map. And like the lake was theirs. I mean, it could be a pond, but like it was pretty big. And honestly, if it snowed and this was New York, so it was for sure going to snow. If it snowed up there and you were looking at they didn't have like a wall of windows, but there was like a wall that had like shit ton of windows very close to the first example. It would have been freaking beautiful. So I can see why this would have been nice, but she would have been like out in the middle of fucking nowhere with this dude who, oddly enough, picked like crime scene cleanup kind of jobs. Like, sure, you know, Surf Pro does flood and fire and all that stuff. But who do you call? You have to pick up biohazard or clean up biohazard. Uh, I can think of like three recent examples that I know of where people called Surpro. It's weird that there's like three recent. We're talking like last two years recent. And it wasn't me. Just to clarify. Yeah. So anywho, I did find it super shocking when they arrested him immediately. Like, obviously, this guy looks sketchy as fuck. There wasn't a break in. And if this happened in the middle of fucking night, she definitely didn't let somebody in her damn house especially considering the attack happened, it started in her bedroom. If the attack started in her bedroom, would she let somebody in through the garage of all places in the middle of the fucking night? And then they calmly go up to her bedroom and then the attack starts there. That doesn't make any sense. So this was not a breaking and entering. This was not a robbery. 
Like this definitely seemed planned. I also, it said that he got back to the house at 12 a.m., 12.30 a.m., my bad. We're talking Tom now, fucking Tom. Fuck around and find out, Tom. It said he got back at 12.30 a.m. He called 911 at 12.38 a.m. If you find your wife beaten to death in the floor of your fucking kitchen, the fuck are you doing for eight minutes? Riddle me that because it wasn't checking for vital signs or doing CPR. That's for damn sure. No blood on your clothes, not shit. And you're asking your kids if there was a robber. Super specific ask. Thanks a lot for that. But if you're asking your child this eight minutes later on the phone, are you telling me this is the first fucking time you've talked to your damn kids since finding your wife beaten to death on the fucking kitchen floor? You didn't immediately run up to check on those children? Eight minutes? The fuck have you been doing, Tom? Riddle me that. Actually, you don't have to. Fucking count cockroaches, dude. That's what you're going to be doing forever. Fucking reminisce on your days as a hockey player dancing nearly naked on a bar and fighting police cadets and having your fucking delinquent ass friend who can't keep a serve pro job kill your damn wife. And it said that he like made threats to Michael. I don't know what any of those are. Michael didn't have a ton to lose. Also very curious what was going on with Michael's wife where he's like, oh, I was worried she would be arrested for what, Michael? What are you talking about? And he needs to stop fucking talking. People need to stop giving him airtime. And if you hear some weird noises, it is my stomach grumbling. It's aggressive right now. Anywho, very curious, very curious what was going on with his wife where he's just fuck this guy. They need to. Yeah, I have really trailed off for a second. Anyway. Yeah, he, he needs he needs to stop getting airtime. Everything that comes out of his mouth is a lie. I do think there might be something to the I think it was 2020 interview he did where he was like, Tom called me uh, because he wanted a late night meeting. And he thinks that was him trying to get Michael framed for the murder. I guess Michael thinks Tom committed. And I think there's some truth to at least them actually talking, because in the first round of events that Michael came up with, he said that Tom was supposed to call him as like the go ahead, but he wasn't supposed to answer. However, Linda recalled hearing Tom talk in hushed tones. So there was something being said in that phone call. That's where I think that all of the stories have lies in them and all of them have bullshit in them. And I would be very interested to know what the actual truth is, but we might never know. I would love to know the length of that call, but if it's under a minute, it probably is only going to say a minute and we truly will never know. But yeah, Svu fucking murdered somebody by like literally hopping on a bike. That's how you started your fucking murder for hire. And fucking Tom hired somebody who rode a bike. Rock bottom. All of it's rock bottom. You all suck, but we're going to talk shit about how much you suck and be grateful that you suck as much as you do and you're as dumb as you are. There's a lot of dumb in here. Super dumb. Yeah, fuck these guys. We hate them. Kelly's family is amazing. They've had to deal with so much unimaginable bullshit. They've held it together and done everything they can to make sure that her kids live the most normal life humanly possible. And that is no easy feat when fucking Tom is your damn dad. And so shout out to them for just doing so much hard work and being amazing humans. The kids are additional victims here. I fucking hate that. Yeah, here's my hot take. I don't know if they're hot about it. Very standard because fuck these guys. And why was that Mark dude not arrested for like ever? 
I think it's interesting that he was charged with murder and then brought down a manslaughter, but it doesn't seem like he participated in any of that. But you do have some culpability if you knew what the fuck was going to be happening. Now, you know, Michael claimed that Mark didn't know what was going to be happening, but it was definitely going to be criminal. Either way, like, dude, you could have fucking told anybody. You could have, like, not participated. How do fucking shit-ass people like this all know additional shit-ass people who might even shit-ass up them? Like, you one-up the shit-assness. It's wild. Stop fucking hanging out in groups. Hang out with smarter people. Let it rub off. Fucking shithead. <laughs> End of my hot take. Okay. I love you guys. Okay, bye.